Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Saints in Society. I'm your host, Brad Leibolt, with my guest, Rick Reeves. And today we're talking about alcohol. We're going to start a three-part series on what we as Christians believe or think about alcohol. Alcohol is common, obviously, in our world, in our society, and there's a lot of questions in the church about how we should think through alcohol. And so we're going to kick off the series uh, by looking at the Christology of alcohol and how Jesus's life, ministry, death, and resurrection shape our views of wine and alcohol. In part two, we're going to look at how alcohol has been viewed throughout church history, which is really helpful discussion as we look at how various Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have viewed alcohol and its use. And then the last episode in this series, we'll be looking at the what we use alcohol for. Uh, we believe alcohol is a good gift given by God, but that can be oftentimes misused and abused. And so we want to explore kind of the heart behind the reasons why we, we use alcohol the way that we do. So we're excited that you are with us. Looking forward to this discussion. Let's jump into it. You are listening to Saints in Society, a podcast focusing on equipping saints to live in and engage with their society. As we dive into the word and with help from experts in their field, we seek to learn how to engage culture in its terms, but not on them. We believe the gospel speaks to all of life and provides the answers we are all looking for. So we aim to equip saints with the tools necessary to apply the gospel to all areas of life, living as saints in society. All right, Rick, uh, here is the question to get things going. If you could hang out with any celebrity for a day, who would it be? I would choose one of two. Okay. I would choose Joe Rogan or Chris Hemsworth. Okay. Joe Rogan, because I have a lot that I have in common with him, love for martial arts, all that sort of good Mm -hmm. stuff. I'd like to be able to grapple with him, but also have a lot that I disagree with him on. Uh, and so I'd like to talk to that stuff with him. And he seems like he does a good job in that. Chris Hemsworth, just because he seems like a lot of fun and doesn't take mm. himself serious. Yeah. Okay. What Let's about see. you? Yeah. Between two, another one of the Chris's, Chris Pratt. Mm. He seems like a, uh, I mean, how do you actually know this? But he seems normal, fun, and he likes to hunt too, which is cool. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's another Joe Rogan thing too that I mm-hmm. have in common with him. Yeah. Yeah. Then yeah. my other one would be Andy Samberg. I think he's hilarious. And yeah, I think it'd be a good, a good time. Lots of laughs. So here's, here's a question back at you. Okay. I know we've asked each other before, who is one person in church history that you would like to hang out with and you can't choose Jesus or the apostles Mm -hmm. modern day right now, 21st century living theologians, scholars, who would you choose to hang out with? Oh man. I was, it's always dead ones. I don't have any live ones on my mind. Um, probably Keller. Yeah. Why? Because um, you couldn't think of anyone else right now. <laughs> that's kind of it. Well, also, maybe you go with my boy, Peter Lightheart. Mm. Love his books. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think uh, I like the way... You can't even say that statement without laughing. <laughs> Peter Lightheart, Lightheart wrote a book called Deep Exegesis that I read for my Greek class in seminary and thought it was awesome, recommended it to Rick. And then we bought a bunch of copies for a group of guys that are church to read through. And I think we got through one chapter. Maybe <laughs> two. Maybe two. It we called have, it. Yeah. The book might as well have been written in Latin or Greek or something yeah. like that because. Yeah. 
It's not an easy read. No, it's tough. But uh, he writes a variety of things. You read his commentary on Kings, right? Yeah, really good. Really good. Yeah. So really Christ him, centered. Um, or Tim Mackey. I like Tim Mackey a lot. Mm. What about you? Honestly, it's a really difficult question for me because when I think a lot of I think of a lot of scholars and modern day like theologians, most of them seem really boring <laughs> and not a lot of fun to hang out with. Yeah. And so I'm thinking through this in in the lens of like who would be the least painful to spend a day with? <laughs> That's where I start. But then I shift into some some professors that I had and I was like, oh, it's not that these people that I'd have to bear spending a day with them. I think I'd actually just enjoy spending a day with mm -hmm. him and I think they'd be the most fun. And so I would actually say from Western Seminary, Ryan Lister oh, or Todd yeah. Miles. Those guys are great. And they just have a great sense of humor, fun, don't take themselves super serious. Yeah. yeah so I would choose those guys. I think it's I a bummer you didn't choose anyone from the own, you know, the school you went to, but. Well, I feel like uh, Tim Mackey taught. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah. I also think I would change my answer now. I think I would hang out with Ray Ortland. Ooh, that's also a good yeah. one. Yeah. He's such a rad guy. Yeah. And he also loves to hunt, so. Yeah. Um, Eye contact with him, though, is really, like, I feel like when he stares at you, even through a video, it feels oh. like he's peering into your soul. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't want that kind of. It's just, it's just a day we're hanging out. I don't want to like get yeah. too close, you yeah. know? Just sit side by side in the booth. Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Well, let's uh, dive into today's topic, talking about alcohol or booze, as mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Rick, where, where do you kind of want to start and what, uh, what do you want to hopefully get out of this conversation? Yeah. So we're going to approach this through a three-part series. So today I want to talk about the Christology of wine, and I want to talk about just how wine itself is a picture of Christ's blood. And then I, I want us to spend some time going through the history of alcohol inside the church, because I think that's what we need to do as well. It, it's going to be very scripture heavy, I think both today and in the weeks to come, because we want to see what the Bible says about al alcohol and not just our culture. And I think a lot of of what we have adopted inside of our local churches today has come to us by way of culture and way of tradition mm -hmm. and not necessarily by scripture. So we want to see what scripture has to say about alcohol. And then we want to talk about, and, and we might do some of that today, but in the third part, specifically what alcohol is being used for mm. in the sense of, we did the podcast on porn and we talked about that porn is a solution. I think alcohol for people is a solution. Yeah. It's a way to deal with shame. It's a way to escape. Uh, a lot of times when I confess to you or to our elders uh, in regard to drinking, what I'm confessing is that I've used alcohol to es to escape. Mm -hmm. And so I think oftentimes we use it and we use many other things as a form of escape to deal with pain and whatnot in, in our lives. So yeah, I, th this is going to be a three-part series today, Christology, how mm -hmm. wine, uh, yeah, just the picture of Christ's blood and wine, church history, and then more kind of just getting it down into the heart level. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe just start just to lay your cards on the table what would you say about alcohol, about wine? Is big, big fan. Big fan. Okay. <laughs> What's in your coffee there? Um, <laughs> um, maybe this way. Alcohol before the fall, a result of the fall. Is it a good gift of God that can be abused or is it to be avoided at all costs? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I actually was reading a, a psalm which would which could lead someone to to believe, I'd have to go back and see which psalm this was, but at, at the creation, as God's laying out the foundations of the uh, world, it seems like it is there pre-fall. And so I believe that, I believe it to be pre-fall, 
I see it at the resurrection and I see it at the marriage supper of the lamb. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, in the sense that Jesus says that he's not going to drink this again until he enjoys it with his disciples. I think he does that post-resurrection, but I believe it's something that we'll enjoy in the the new heavens and the new earth yeah. one day as well. So, okay. so yeah, but I think with anything, <laughs> I think man finds a way to abuse things. And yeah. so I think this is a good gift that God has given us that man finds a way to abuse. And we always find ways to abuse God's good gifts, but I don't think that means that we should reject the gift. I think we should see what scripture has to say about the gift. I think we should understand the context in which the gift is to be enjoyed, how we enjoy the gift, but I don't think we reject the gift. I mean, food. If you look at the amount of people that have eating disorders, I believe it's like 30 million Americans. And so it is a staggering, the amount of people that don't just use food to, well, let me rephrase that, that people have eating disorders to where they starve themselves. There's bulimia, there's anorexia, there's stuff like that, but also food is used as gluttony. And it is used to deal with shame. It is, I I can eat at my shame. I can eat at things to, again, escape and stuff like that. But we don't necessarily see people addressing food. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of gifts that God gives that man always finds a way to abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, teenagers have done that nowadays. Are you familiar with parachuting, Brad? You bet I am. (laughs) Oh, wait, let me rephrase Oh, my goodness, man. I'm familiar with it because of conversations we've had. In the woods. Yeah. So just for our (laughs) listeners, you guys are welcome for this educational piece you're about to receive right now. But we found out about parachuting because our hunting buddy said, you guys know what parachuting is. And of course, anyone thinks... Jumping out of a plane. Jumping out of a plane. Of course, you know what parachuting is. And he goes on to explain, and he's a uh, uh, paramedic firefighter, that kids have been getting sick. They've ended up in the hospital because of parachuting. And it's not jumping out of a plane. They've actually are now soaking tampons in alcohol and inserting those. I don't even know. Where where the sun don't shine. (laughs) Where the sun don't shine. How do I I phrase this? I mean, quite quite directly, they're putting it up their butt. And and then they aren't able to control their intoxication levels. Uh, they, you know, they're doing it because it's not on their mouth or on their breath or anything like that. But yeah, kids are getting really sick from doing this. I mean, this is, this is a primary explicit way that man takes a good gift and then takes it as far as we can in the wrong direction to abuse it. But I don't believe we reject the gift Mm -hmm. that the gift giver has given us. We just need to put all of God's gifts in their appropriate place and not raise the gift into the place of the gift giver. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the greatest way we abuse God's gifts is we make the gifts God. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. And what we'll talk about today is many of these gifts God has given us become mm, maybe metaphors or uh, pictures of the gospel. So we talked about sex and marriage mm-hmm. on the last podcast and how marriage and the gift and, and sex are gifts that God has given us. And we even have, language in scripture that talks about Christ's relationship with the church in a way that it's a marriage, right? The the Bible is a book about marriage. It begins with a marriage, culminates in uh, the marriage of Christ and the church, and then it ends with a marriage. And so in the same way, we see alcohol and wine specifically connected to Christ, connected to themes of blood and remembrance and those kinds of stuff. And so let's, let's get into that with this Christology of alcohol. Yeah, great. The first miracle that we get to see in John's gospel is Jesus turning water into wine. Mm. So here is a wedding feast and 
I'm slightly distracted because <laughs> Zach, who's normally on the other side of the booth, is sliding toward us in a chair. We're going to keep cruising here. So the wedding at Cana, Jesus and his disciples show up. First, Jesus is invited. I think we should stop and just focus on that. <laughs> Jesus so, had friends? Jesus had friends, but he was also invited to parties. And sometimes, just sometimes, maybe it's an indicator as a Christian, if you're never invited to parties, that maybe <laughs> maybe people, you know, I don't want to put shame on people or anything like that, but sometimes I think people aren't invited because they're not a lot of fun to be around. I think Jesus was a lot of fun to be around Mm -hmm. and he could do some pretty amazing stuff like turn water into wine. And so first he's there, he's, he's at this wedding feast and wedding feast in these cultures didn't go on for a couple hours like ours did. They went on for days and days, like, like a week long wedding, uh, wedding celebration. So they're there and they run out of wine. This there's no greater way to kill a party, a week long party, <laughs> a week long party than on what is it? Day three, I believe Yeah, to run out of wine. And so they run out of wine. Jesus's mom comes to him and she's essentially saying, Hey, can you fix this for us? And he says, woman, it's, it, it's not my hour. But then what he does is he has, he asks the people there to get the purification jars and he gives wine. Not just a little bit of wine. How much wine, Brad? A lot of wine. There's six jars that each hold 20 or 30 gallons. So we'll go conservative 20 gallons times six. That's math is hard for us pastors. What's that? 120 gallons? Yeah. A massive amount of wine. And he doesn't like fill them up half full. It's to the brim. Yeah. So why would John record Jesus's first miracle as turning water into wine? Or why was that Jesus's first miracle in John's gospel? I believe the reason that's the first miracle, I think there's a lot here, just to be clear. Like we could spend, I think, several podcasts on this alone. But in the Old Testament, we see that wine is given to gladden men's hearts, but it's also a sign of blessing and curse. So when the land was uh, blessed, then the grapes would be in full bloom and they would produce wine. When the land was cursed, I'm not sure if I mixed up my words there, but but essentially what I'm saying is when, when the land is blessed, wine would be the byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. When the land was cursed, then it wasn't growing. Yeah. There was no wine. Jesus shows up and now what he's doing is he's, he is the one who is re- reversing any curse. And even we see in the Exodus, the water of the Nile River was turned into blood. That was a curse. So it's, I think what we see with Jesus at Cana and at the wedding feast is he's saying like, look, the, the, the curse is coming to an end, but it's only one man doing this work. It's not the nation, na- nation of Israel. It's not mankind. It's not a bunch of people. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm reversing the curse. And, and what I'm doing is I'm giving a gift that's going to gladden the heart. It's one man doing all the work at the wedding feast. And then the person who's the master of the ceremony and the bridegroom, they get all the credit for the work that Jesus does. That's a picture of the gospel. Mm-hmm. But it's him saying, essentially, I'm going to reverse the curse. I'm going to do the work and I'm going to do it through the shedding of my blood. This week's local business spotlight is Off the Waffle. Owners Dave and Omer are originally from Israel, 
but grew up traveling around the world. They had spent time in Belgium, Israel, and Boston. One of Omer's first memories is of receiving a Liège waffle from his kindergarten teacher in Brussels after a full day free of him causing a ruckus. Since their departure from Belgium, they have been obsessing over Liège waffles and how to make them even better. Dave and Omer had worked in restaurants for a few years, saving up for a long backpacking trip in Latin America. When they ran out of traveling money, Dave flew to England for a job opportunity. After having realized that this job was not for him, Dave and Omer met up in San Francisco. Dave suggested they move up to the Eugene area. After about a month, they fell in love with the place and the community. They knew that Eugene would be the perfect place to open an authentic Liège waffle shop, a family dream for decades. The original Off the Waffle was opened out of a house in the West Jefferson neighborhood in February of 2009. Word got out extremely fast and the shop eventually got so busy that they had to look for a larger place. So they moved to the incredibly welcoming community of South Eugene in 2010. That is where Omer and Dave were joined by their father and sister, Shimon and Vered. In 2012, they added a shop in downtown Eugene as their second location. At the end of the day, Off the Waffle wants to make the best Liège waffles, spread joy, and have fun doing it. They even take time to sponsor and donate to many local nonprofits, schools, and other charities. What sets Off the Waffle apart is their killer recipe that took a long time to perfect. They even design and manufacture their own waffle machines, use exclusively organic products and eggs, and take care to source the best quality ingredients possible for the best waffles possible. So if you're feeling the urge for a waffle, visit our friends at Off the Waffle and let them know that you heard about them on this podcast. Let me ask you this. What is more precious, more costly, and more valuable than the blood of Jesus Christ in, in, in the universe? Nothing. Nothing. What did Jesus use to call us to remember his blood? Wine. Wine. There is nothing. Well, so I'll keep asking questions. We'll just reverse roles here. Right. <laughs> what, what gladdens the heart more than the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Nothing. Nothing. And, and what, what he's doing here is he's given us a picture of his blood and, and he's given us a future picture of what he's going to do is he's going to purify us. That's why they had purification jars. That's why John's gospel makes that clear is he's going to purify. He's going to cleanse us through his blood. And what he does is he turns water into wine and this water, or I'm sorry, this wine keeps the party going. Mm -hmm. It's gladdening the hearts of men. That's ultimately pointing to what his blood is one day going to do. It is going to purify us, cleanse us, reconcile us to God. And it's going to give us the one and ultimate thing that gladdens gladdens our hearts, the love, the acceptance, and the joy of a relationship with God the Father. And so he's showing here that what the, what the blood is and what it's going to do is, is it's ultimately going to gladden our hearts. And wine is a picture of what that blood does is it gladdens our hearts. Like ha have a glass of wine and it gladdens your heart. Mm -hmm. Have a glass of grape juice <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily gladden your heart. It gladdens my heart when I'm really hungry at the end of church and I finally get some sustenance, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah. not in the same way that wine gladdens the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you tracking me with what I said there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's also this picture of grace. Again, Jesus doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to give them this blessing. Like, like 
he doesn't have to turn all of this water into wine, but he does it and he does it abundantly. I mean, he does it to the brim. It's a picture of his grace. When he gives his blood, when he gives his grace, when he gives us the good news of the gospel, what he's done, accomplished and finished, it is, it is an all an act of grace of his work alone that we benefit and reap all the benefits mm-hmm. from. And it's all a picture of grace. And so I believe that what he does at Cana is, is this, it's also this, it's the first miracle. And what he does at the beginning of his ministry points to what he's ultimately going to do at the end of his ministry. It's the same thing with baptism in, in, in the other gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see Jesus at the beginning getting baptized. He's not getting baptized because he's a sinner who needs to be cleansed. He's identifying himself at the beginning of his ministry with what, how his ministry is going to end. He is getting baptized to say, I'm going to take on your sin so that I can cleanse and purify you. I'm not a sinner who needs to be baptized. I'm going to identify myself as the worst of all sinners by taking on all the sin and then cleansing it and and, and removing it. And not just that, I'm just going to throw this in. He does that in the Jordan River. Hmm. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Israelites cross the Jordan River to come into the promised land. So it's now Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, who took them across, stepping into the Jordan River, showing that through my cleansing, I am the one who's going to bring you into the promised land. So again, I think Jesus doing this at the beginning of his ministry is just pointing to something, or he's simply pointing to how his, how, how his life is going to end. Yeah. yeah and you, you mentioned, you just mentioned the promised land, going back to wine, part of the promise of the land for the Israelites in the Old Testament was a land that would be abundant with food and crops and uh, the fruit of the vine would be, yeah, there would be this abundance of produce produced from the earth, this, this promised land that the Israelites get for a moment, but then throw it all away through their sin and disobedience. And I think Jesus, the beginning of his ministry saying, here's an abundance of the fruit of the earth. Like, it's now the kingdom is like he's the one now initiating yes. the kingdom, the new heavens and new earth, the this new better promised land, yep. not no longer just a geographic land, mm-hmm. but a, a spiritual yes. land in a sense that yep. uh, yeah. So in the same way that he went through the Jordan in the kind of this new promised land thing in the in the Gospel of John, he points out that he's coming into to bring the the blessing and produce and abundance of life that was promised to the Israelites so long ago. Yeah. And and as you're saying, it's not Israel turning to God. It's one man who spends his whole life turning in obedience to God in the way that they never did and we never could, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the other really amazing thing. So so just to even go back, laying my cards on the table, I believe we should drink wine. I believe we can I believe that the church should actually, even though ours doesn't, serve wine for communion. Because again, Jesus is calling us to remember him. So when we take communion, it's an act of remembrance. And and the way we remember him is through a really good gift that he's given. And as it goes down, it gladdens the hearts of men. But it also in Judges says that it gladdens the heart, that it gladdens the heart of God. So this gift is something that doesn't just gladden our hearts. God's creation is something that gladdens his own heart too. And so as we drink it in remembrance of him, it's this really good gift that we can enjoy. And that every time we drink it, we can remember him. And it's ultimately wine that causes us to remember. This is just a picture of, again, the Israelites, the way they would celebrate Passover is they would remember the way that God saved and redeemed them from the slavery of the Egyptians. And they would have four rounds of wine celebrating their Passover meal. 
I've heard it said that unbelievers, non-Christians drink to forget, Christians drink to remember. We drink to remember that we serve a good God who has given good gifts that gladden our hearts. Like it is okay to drink wine to gladden your heart. It is okay mm-hmm. to drink wine to remember God, remember his good gifts. Whether we eat or drink, anything we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Every day, everything we do, eating and drinking, is just a, a way that we can remember God's goodness to us. Ultimately, wine is to remember the ultimate thing that Jesus has done to gladden our hearts, shed his blood and purchase us. A glass of wine can be the remembrance of, wow, I have this wine. It's really good. It glads my heart, but it takes me to the, to the happiest place my heart can be, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The gospel, God's grace. And so I say all this with like a sense of trepidation and, and here's my reason. People put so much stock into what pastors say, and we're both pastors. I don't want to advocate for anyone getting drunk. And so we'll talk about that in future podcasts that, that scripture is clear in this. Where's the line? Drunkenness is the line. How do we define drunkenness? We'll get to that in future podcasts. But I don't want to, to put people in a position where they're like, well, my pastor said this or my pastor that like, listen to the spirit of God. Mm. Uh, don't do anything that goes against your own conscience. That's what I would say. But I believe there's so much freedom in this area. And there's a lot of weirdness around this area. Mm-hmm. For instance, look at Cana. You don't see Jesus asking people to raise their hands. Hey, is there anyone here that struggles with alcohol? This is, you know, a, a certain event. We want to make sure the church does that. It's like, you know, and just to be fair, it's okay. I got pushed back a couple years ago that we had a volunteer appreciation. We had alcohol at it. I'm like, what safer place is there for Christians to enjoy alcohol than in the context of other Christians mm-hmm. who, we, who can remind one another what it is to drink and enjoy a gift for the glory of God? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we bring all this cultural, I don't know, pressure that I think has come out of the prohibition into the way we think through and make decisions inside of the local church. But it's, I mean, Jesus provided a massive amount of wine. Mm-hmm that people were going to use to have a really good time. And, and it wasn't like trying to figure out like, should we do this? Should we not do this? There might be someone here who struggles with alcohol. There might not. I think, I don't think we should do anything that causes our brother or sister to stumble. But I think sometimes we have this immense amount of pressure that we put on this one area. Yeah. We don't do that with phones. I've said this before. If 90% of people are struggling with pornography, I don't see anyone getting rid of their phones because they're saying, I don't want to cause my brother or sister mm-hmm. in Christ to, str- to stumble. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that you can be a conservative Baptist and you can be really overweight and preach in the pulpit. You just can't drink alcohol. Right. It's like, apparently this person's struggling with gluttony. Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it's an overconsumption of food, but no one's addressing that. Mm-hmm. We're just addressing alcohol. And so I think there's some weirdness there that we do need to address. Yeah, It's a little bit of like Pharisaism and building a fence around the law and, yeah. and, and an emphasis on the letter of the law and what can and can't we do and where is the line and how close to the edge can we get without falling off with and like a big miss on what the spirit of the law is and and what is God's actual intention in these things. Um, can I can I lob a uh, maybe some pushback at you? And yeah, you yeah, respond to yeah. Okay, great. I hear you, Rick. Wine, sure, but Jesus didn't make vanilla vodka or uh, moonshine or some of these other alcohols that we have today uh, that don't come from grapes. And I've heard before uh, the the alcohol content of the wine in Jesus's day was much lower than we are able to produce today with technology, the technology that we have and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So how would you, if, if someone says, okay, great. Yeah. Wine for communion to remember why a glass of wine to make the, the heart glad, but may, maybe it stops there 
Um, what about all these other forms of alcohol that seem to be much stronger and much more dangerous when we get into the conversation of drunkenness? Yeah. You, you lopped a few at me there. Okay. So, so which You're one do you want to that by now? Um, which one do you want me to tackle first? Uh, like strong drink, like spirits and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. Like whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Whiskey. So I would argue the same argument for that. I mean, whiskey comes from corn, which is another crop that God mm -hmm. provided, including the soil and the rain to water it. Mm -hmm. Vodka comes from potatoes, another crop that God has given. And I so, think you could write a country song about that. Yeah, I think maybe someone already has. <laughs> and, and so, but, but let's not just use that. Let's use scripture to support this one. Well, I'll jump in your next one. I think it's a really weak argument that no one's making that, that they were using wine because the water was so bad. Like Jesus could have just turned the, the water into cleaner water, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. he could have did that, yeah. but he didn't. And if wine didn't have the capability of, of being strong enough to get people drunk, then why does the new Testament cover drunkenness and why sure. do our Bibles? Yeah. Why did Noah get off a boat? Well, we know why Noah did it. <laughs> Noah's on a boat for a long period of time with his, with his family and his in-laws. The first, <laughs> well, I might get in trouble for saying that. I love my family deeply and love my in-laws yeah. deeply, but he gets off this boat. He builds a, <laughs> he builds a vineyard and gets drunk right away. It's like this, this man is, <laughs> is yeah. longing for some wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he does. It he doesn't. There, there's no indication that it's this watered down, diluted wine or something yeah. like that. I don't know. I would want someone to support that because I think you could read uh, Kenneth Gentry's book, God Gave Wine, and he does a great job unpacking that it's not Welch's grape juice. So maybe I would steer you there, but I would I would want to know where are you getting these claims from sure. because I don't think they're actually supported by the early church or by Scripture itself. Plus, let me read some passages to you. Okay, I love this one. Deuteronomy 29, two through six says this, <clears throat> and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land, the, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or even ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. And your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not, listen to this part, you have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. He is showing that they have gone through a hardship. God has provided for them, but they have not got the blessing of bread, wine, or strong drink. So it's showing here they, they've endured a hardship and those things are referred to as a blessing. Mm -hmm. But it's actually talking about a way that you can worship God. And this is in Deuteronomy as well. It's in 14, 22 through 26. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field this year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, listen to this, and spend the money for whatever you desire. He gives a list. You can take the money 
buy what you want, whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, wine or ready for this strong drink, Mm, whatever, yeah, whatever your appetite craves and you shall eat there before the Lord and, and rejoice you and your household. So again, these are just a couple examples of ways that we can enjoy God's gifts, including strong drink, which there's a separate category for wine and for strong drink. Mm -hmm. But these are ways that we can enjoy God's goodness. And if you've been around GCC long enough, we, we always toast to the king. And, and I believe that we can enjoy these things, recognizing that all these good gifts come to us by way of the king. Mm-hmm. And we can enjoy them for the glory of God. I love what First Timothy 6, 17 says. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Listen to this. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I think we, we are given these gifts, strong drink, wine food, these types of things to recognize God's goodness. I believe I can drive down a backcountry road, listening to good music, enjoying God's goodness through listening to music, through enjoying his creation out on a hike, fishing, all these types of things, whatever it is, I'm recognizing these are incredible gifts my creator has given me. And just even recognizing that these come from my creator, I believe is a form of worship. Like, whoa, Like I get to enjoy all these things and the creator of the universe. I ultimately get to enjoy him because of what he's done through the shedding of his own son's blood. Like he purchased me. Not only do I get to enjoy his creation, I get to enjoy his creation and all of the gifts with the creator of the gifts. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's remarkable. And so that that would be my pushback to someone who's against vanilla vodka. Honestly, I, I think vanilla vodka is nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and vodka itself reminds me of a lot of pre-Jesus mm, yeah. moments hanging over a toilet. And so... Not for you. Not for me. No. Yeah. Whiskey for sure, but not vanilla vodka yeah. or vodka in general. Yeah. 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 I want to conclude our time with even pointing to what Jesus did on the cross. Mm-hmm. Because on the cross, there is so much going on that we don't even, I mean, I think this is amazing, but it would be easy to overlook this. Jesus was fulfilling so much. In fact, if you read Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, you have to read Psalm 22 and read it and understand like this is pointing to Christ and mm-hmm. what he's going to endure and suffer on the cross. But twenty-two, fifteen says this. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. So, so that phrase pointing to what Christ will endure on the, on the cross is that people who hung there crucified were thirsty, so much so that their tongue would start sticking to their jaw, that their mouths were so dry. Then we know and understand this, that on the cross, Jesus was offered two different types of wine. The first one was like a, it was an adenine. It it was basically like a form or some type of like painkiller, which he declines Mm -hmm. because he doesn't want anything to take away, I believe, from feeling what it is to redeem us. Mm -hmm. But the second one he, he takes, which was, you know, he even said, I thirst. I believe he was literally physically thirsty. But also what, what, what happened at this moment when Jesus was able to take the second cup, which wasn't, wasn't something to numb the pain it actually loosened up his tongue. Hmm. So this Psalm 2215 is, is your tongues could literally almost essentially stick to your Mm -hmm. jaw. He's given the wine and we read in Psalm 78, 65, it says, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And what did Jesus say? So he says, I thirst, they give it, uh, they give him this drink. 
loosens up his tongue and he says the words that all of our souls need ultimately it is finished mm-hmm. so like even like on the cross just all that's going on there uh and him being offered wine I, and 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 him thirsting i don't I, I think that yes absolutely he was physically thirsty but i also believe that that what we're getting a picture of is that christ was actually thirsting for us and and for the souls of men i love the the old hymn uh, from uh, Cecil Francis, it says this, but more than pains that racked him then was the deep longing thirst divine that thirsted for the souls of men, dear Lord, and one was mine. Yeah. So he's saying that, yes, he was thirsting. Yes, th- there was this deep agony of thirst, but it's ultimately he was thirsting for the souls of men and one of them was mine. And so again, all of this, his bloodshed on the cross, all of it's pointing to this thing that ultimately Jesus knows we need a reconciled relationship with God to gladden our hearts. Here's the way you remember that through his bloodshed, which is symbolic for wine. I don't believe God wants us just to know objective facts about the gospel and about his goodness. I believe he wants us to taste and experience them. Mm. Wine is one way that we can actually taste and experience God's goodness. We are called to not just, again, state facts and no facts intellectually about God. We are called to experience the goodness of God's love, the goodness that he is a God who provides. And I believe wine and food and these drinks are a way that we can actually experience, not just know, but experience the goodness of God. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Thanks, Rick, for those thoughts. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, Our goal on this podcast uh, is always to uh, address topics from the perspective of a saint. How does the gospel and our identity as saints, holy ones, holy people shape the way we view various things that society would maybe say we should view differently? And so this conversation about alcohol is no different. We want to understand how to view alcohol with thoughts that are shaped and informed by scripture and God's word and not by culture around us so that we can go engage in society in a way that honors God and is true to um, what he has communicated to us in his word. Uh, This is the first part of a series on alcohol. We have a couple episodes left on season one of Saints in Society, uh, and we'll we'll wrap up this season with a couple other uh, topics. So if you are looking forward to the next couple parts on alcohol, then stay tuned for season two, uh, which will be coming out not too long after season one ends. Um, In the meantime, if you have any topics that you would love for us to cover on this podcast, you can always email Zach. His information is in the show notes. Um, Thank you for tuning in and uh, we'll catch you next time.